This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast for End Slavery Tennessee. Through the telling of their stories, this show empowers survivors of domestic human trafficking and educates listeners on what's really happening in their own backyards. I'm Leslie, your host. Joining me is In Slavery Tennessee founder, Derry Smith. Thanks, Leslie. Our survivor interview today features Crystal, whose experience with trafficking involves contracting HIV from a John. As you'll hear, there are many complications for survivors during recovery if HIV or AIDS is part of their story. Perhaps most profound is their labeling as a sexual predator if diagnosed with the virus and convicted of prostitution. This creates a number of issues when these survivors seek help. RestoreCorps, based in Memphis, the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking, based in Knoxville, and End Slavery Tennessee, based in Nashville, have long worked closely together to work toward solutions for dilemmas like these. Governor Haslam appointed these agencies to serve as the single point of contact in their region to ensure that every Tennessean in every county had consistent access to resources and services related to human trafficking in our state. This statewide alliance is called the Tennessee Anti-Slavery Alliance, or TASA. This statewide approach is the reason Tennessee has led the nation in its response to the crime of human trafficking for the last three years as ranked by Shared Hope International and is a model recognized nationally for its efficacy. Each TASA agency partners with many governmental and nonprofit agencies in their region. Crystal has worked with our partners at the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking. Like each TASA agency, the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking unites and equips their community to end human trafficking while providing survivors with comprehensive trauma-informed aftercare services. The Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking serves 33 counties as the TASA partner for the East Tennessee region. The first step to understanding this issue is education, as Crystal will tell you. Even in my questioning, I was really uninformed on the difference between HIV and AIDS, and I'm grateful that we got to have this conversation so I can better understand the nuances between them. As always, it's important to note on this podcast that topics of sexuality and adult nature are included, so please be aware that the content may be triggering for some and not appropriate for children. We're so delighted to introduce to you now, Crystal. I wonder if we could start with some misconceptions about the world of HIV and AIDS. I know you speak a lot about it. What can you tell us just from the get-go that we should understand? HIV is extremely miscommunicated in the community. HIV is still basically based on the 80s education of, you know, we're diseased, we're nasty, infectious, and it's a death sentence. Um, And that is so far from where we are right now in 2020. HIV is no longer a death sentence. I'll be positive 20 years this December. Hmm. I've got amazing health. It's definitely not talked about in the community because everyone keeps kind of like playing that game operator where everyone just keeps passing the same information. Yes. And unless you're positive and you've been living with it or you're an advocate, there's really no reason but for you to stay stuck and, and 
stagnant in that stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting close or, you know, eating toilets, shaking hands. It, it's, it's very sad that we're still living with, you know, people still believing those beliefs. I remember in sixth grade, they taught us how it's contracted and they were very clear. And yet for years, people in school would say things like dumb things, like you get it in toilets. And I was like, that is absolutely not what we were taught, <laughs> you no. know? And there's no. a, pre- I think there's prevailing falsehoods that are kind of taking over. In there are, there's plenty. I mean, you know, people get AIDS and HIV in the same, and they're not, um, even though it's the same you know, condition within the diagnosis of HIV, AIDS is a syndrome. So AIDS is only diagnosed if your CD4 count falls below 200. So people get that confused as well. You know, it's very stigmatizing language and it's not appropriate. Yeah. AIDS and HIV are two separate conditions diagnosed by a doctor. They're not the same thing. I see. So HIV is what one gets first and then it can eventually. It can it can, but that's another thing that, you know, the com- it's not out there with education. HIV is nowhere where we've been. You know, I've lived with it 20 years and I've been undetectable for a good 18 years of that. And so what that means, being undetectable means you're untransmittable. That means I cannot pass HIV on to any sexual partners, oh. them being negative. Um, as long as my viral load is undetectable, the virus does not transmit. And that's for all living with HIV, with undetectable viral loads. I got pregnant 14 years in being positive and gave birth to a vaginal birth to a perfectly healthy child who is six years old now and HIV negative. Hmm. Um, and these are the things that the community is not being educated and does not, you know, don't read on, don't learn about. It's still shake hands and pull it. We're so far from that. Um, the medications have advances, the care has advances and it's manageable. Um, I've never had the flu. I don't get sick. My health is no different than the next person. The only different, the only difference is I have to take one pill a day. Yeah. You were infected. Is that the right word to use? Yeah, that's fine. As a teenager from a John, right? Yes. So How did that affect your experience both during and after? When it happened, of course, thought it was a hoax. You you go through a lot of things out there. But six months later, my test came back positive. My test came back positive in the sense it was announced before a full courtroom. Um, So that's how that happened. And you say it was a hoax because you were told that this person. No, I just didn't believe the John. I just didn't believe. I mean, you get a lot of threats out there working and especially the type of, of, you know, environment I was in. I just didn't believe it. Um, there's nobody to go to. You don't go to the police officers out there, particularly the side that I was on. You just end up getting arrested for admitting to prostitution. There wasn't really no set counselor sense kind of, um, policing out there, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. You were, you were a criminal. They, they, they didn't have no care in the world. So you're in front of a courtroom and you're diagnosed. That must have been pretty difficult. It was. That's not the way that you need to hear. And it, it, was, it was really hard. There was no counseling. There was no, nobody came to talk to me. I mean, the district attorney never spoke with me. Um, nobody asked questions. 
and I was just warned and released that night back right onto the streets. Wow. The whole process was a mess. Yeah. So what does it look like when you come out of trafficking? What does life look like as someone who's trying to rehabilitate into the world after a particularly difficult season? What does life look like for people like that, people like you? It's it's rough because one of the things I tried looking was halfway houses and programs, but they did not accept. During that time, that was like 2003, 2004. They didn't, no, it was about, no, it was 2002, 2001. They wouldn't accept people living with HIV. They weren't a medical facility. Oh. So HIV was, you know, still really viewed just as deep that you're a chronic, you're, you're, you're a death sentence. You know, we don't have time for doctor's appointments. That's the image people think you're constantly going to doctor's appointments. You're constantly weak. You can't work. You can't hold a job. And that is so far from the truth. Um, That's not us at all. Yeah. I mean, you've just, you have a full-time job and you say you take one pill a day and you are healthy. I am healthy. One of the things that we've talked about is that survivors with HIV are put on sex offender registries. Yes. When you test positive in the state of Tennessee for HIV and you catch a prostitution charge, you are placed on the Tennessee's sex offender registration for aggravated prostitution. You are on the registry as a violent offender for life, um, and you are under the same classifications as the worst pedophile you could ever think of. Those restrictions are the same as pedophiles. Our restrictions are with playgrounds and parks and schools. We cannot step foot on them. We cannot sit idly. We cannot work or reside a thousand feet from a park, school, dog park, state park, daycare, perishable school, to regular school. What does that look like for people with children? Your child is basically placed on the registry with you. I cannot take my child to the playground. I can't take my child to any amusement parks. Can't host birthday parties at the home. Um, no sleepovers. No normalcy. When she started school, I had to inform the principal and the school that I was on the sex offender registration and they put me under full pedophile restrictions, even though they knew my charge has, has nothing to do with children. It doesn't matter. We are all placed in the same bucket as pedophiles. All of our restrictions are umbrellaed under that. So that there's, there's no difference. And in 2015, they actually did an update, which mandated even stricter because aggravated prostitution prior to 2015, we were at least allowed to live within, we could get housing and work within a thousand feet, but they mandated it to include all registered sex offenders. So then that totally exempted treatment centers, halfway houses, oh my. because all those majority of those programs are within the neighborhoods. And you know, if you've got a neighborhood that, you know, just runs a daycare center, you can't live next even to a home daycare center. Oh my goodness. So that pushed us all out of just treatment and stable housing. I guess my question is why just because someone is charged with prostitution and has HIV, what, I mean, what in the world, what is the rationale for putting them in the same category as a child predator? There isn't. That's the point. There isn't. It doesn't make sense at all. I don't really have an answer because it's, it's, it's so painful 
And see, then people see that we get multiple charges. It's like, well, God, she's got two and three charges, but it's like, we had no, we have nowhere to go. It, it's a continued cycle to the streets. Right. You know, it's a continued cycle for survival mode. We're in nonstop survival mode. Hmm. It's extremely heartbreaking. And especially when you have little children now, then you're in survival mode, not only for yourself, but for your child. So I understand you are doing a great deal of work personally and trying to change laws. And you spoke just a moment ago about in 2015, the law was actually changed in the opposite direction of what you're working toward. What are you and other people doing to try to change these laws? Right now, we've got a um, team currently brainstorming on building up. Now, in 2015, actually, actually it was 2014 that they mandated that new um, restriction for residency for all offenders. Now, in 2015, they did work on legislation to where those of us that are on the registry can petition the court to come off of the registry if we prove domestic violence, rape, trafficking. It was a great start, um, and we got great support. The hole with that is now it's requiring it's requiring us to get an attorney. Attorneys aren't free. And not only with that attorney, you've got to build that petition and then you have to present proof. So you have to relive every single thing you went through again hmm. and prove to come off of that. It, it's rough. <laughs> yeah. So essentially it, it, it's being fought at an individual level as yeah. it can be. But a regular rapist can just petition TBI after 10 years and just come off of the registry. They don't need to acquire an attorney. They don't need to go before the court. They'll just come off. Really? Because yeah. the charges are not the same? Yeah. How can we, people who are listening to this show, people like me, what are things we should be looking for so that we can help when we go to the polls? Is there anything that we can do from our vantage point to help change this? Yeah, education. Start educating about HIV. You know, the belief system of what HIV is is so misconstrued. It's not, it's, we're not where we were. You take your medication, you maintain an undetectable viral load, you can't pass the virus, yet HIV is so still heavily on the Southern State law books, one of them being Tennessee, that's where we can start. We can start with the community really reading and really getting those eye openers of, wow, I didn't know that this is HIV now, you know? Mm -hmm. We have children. Our children are born HIV negative. I remember when I got pregnant with her, I was such in a panic because I believed I, and I was working in the field and I believed those lies. And it was just shocking to go through that experience. Yeah. And to know medically for a fact that that science is true. You know, I maintained an undetectable viral load, took my meds every day, didn't miss an appointment. And now my child's healthy, you know, that that's where the community can start is educating and updating what they know. And then go to the polls and ask these questions and then really reach out and wonder why we have over four dozen women sitting on Tennessee state sex offender registration for prostitution and that are restricted under the same pedophile restrictions and rapist restrictions of the trauma which they went through. That was exactly the kind of the thought that I just had was these women, they were victims of things that 
people like child predators yeah. have done, and yet they sit in the same judgment we punishment. Judgment. We have to go stand in line with, with other, you know, those on the registry. We have to get the same monitoring software on our phone. We have to go through polygraphs every six months. Every six months? Yeah. If you're under probation, you will do a polygraph examination every six months. And I cannot begin to tell you how traumatizing just going through that process is. I have to have monitoring software on all my technology that sends a read receipt to everything I do. And the technology platform that I have to use is Covenant Eyes, which is a monitoring software for people who have porn addiction. Hmm. Hmm. It's beyond insulting. Yeah. I'm not a child predator. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a sex offender. You know, I don't, it, it, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. It's infuriating. So many women are being hurt by this. I mean, I've just got a couple of girls that I'm in contact with that are still just constantly on the streets, relapse. It's just a constant cycle of incarceration because it's very few and far in between those of us that do find a, some stability. Right. It's really at the look of the hand and God, you know, yeah. place people at the right time. Yeah. At least for me, it's God, you know, that's placed people to help me at the right time, but it, it shouldn't be that way. All women should be able to access treatment centers and cares and safe houses and shelters. I mean, you can't even access any of the local shelters, no shelters except sex offenders. Mm. And mm. you're, you're not placed in different buckets. You're, you're in one bucket and you are it. Yeah. How can places like or how, I guess, rather, how do places like in slavery, Tennessee, how are they working with government, with survivors, with organizations? You know, are, are they kind of filling a role to help facilitate that? Or are their hands a little bit tied in places? In, in regards to this, I just don't think it's really been brought too much to their attention because it's hard to locate all these women and, and actually get them to where you can help. And quite honestly, there's not too much in slavery could do. Their, their houses as well are restricted. Mm. Because here's the thing, no matter where you live, you have to go up on a public registry with your address. So it doesn't matter if that woman truly needs protection, unless she's like covered under the FBI or witness protection program, that address is going up on the registry. So you can't place a woman in a safe house because then that safe house is exposed on a public registry. Yeah. To where then all those women that are being protected there can now be located just because that one woman address has been alerted to the whole community. Yeah. There, that, there's no, there's no getting away. You do, you don't get a, you don't get to start over. There's no starting over. Hmm. You will always be found if you need to be found. And it doesn't surprise me then that, like you said, so many people would go back to that lifestyle because it's almost like, well, it's a hamster wheel. Yeah. You've found hope. You've found motivation to keep going on that hamster wheel. Or I guess, I guess get off of it or try to do the best you can to make a normal life. What would you say to people who are in it right now and who are kind of have all of that ahead of them? Wow. Stay clean. Find your grounding of your recovery. 
That's the main responsibility. That's where we take our control back. Reach out to the local agencies that you can, that you know you can trust. Um, you know, they're pinpointed in everywhere in Tennessee. I'm not really sure how to answer that. That's a very hard question because from my experience, the getting here required hundreds of turnaways. Hmm. The only reason I am where I am today is because of my child. Because I refuse to allow the cycle to continue. I honestly don't think if I were to have given birth that I would have found the strength to keep fighting through this madness. Mm-hmm. So that's a really hard question because there's not much help out there when it comes to housing and employment. You just kind of, I don't know. <laughs> you just fight. It sounds like you just keep fighting and that's not an easy advice. It sounds like. It's not, it's not because once you're placed on this registry, you are the leprosy of the worst. I mean, you, you're talking, it's, it's probably death penalty, life in prison, sex offender registration. Those are three criminal you do not want to find yourself in. Um, it's, 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 it's barren to hopeless for the restrictions. And especially when you're not a threat to the community, you're not a pedophile, you're not out here attacking and, you know, child, whatever that other stuff they do. It's just, it, it's, it's just doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What? What else would you want to share with people who are listening to this? Education about HIV, I think, is incredibly important. And I'm really glad you brought that to our attention as a starting point. What else is, I mean, I know you've done a great deal of work on this. I am. Um, we've, we've got, a, we got a, the team currently brainstorming. So, I mean, if anybody's interested, we definitely are having those roundtable discussions. Is there an organization that's doing that that we can look into? A Zero Project, and you can look into HIV Law and Policy. Okay. And reach out to them, um, and they'll be more than willing to connect you with the Tennessee Coalition. Mm-hmm. It starts with education. It starts with the judges and district attorneys, TBI, you know, really sitting down and looking at this and seeing these four dozen women that are just in this endless cycle. Mm-hmm. There, there needs to be change. And the, the reason for the change is this registry is harmful in many senses when it relates to women living with HIV. And even men, it, it doesn't matter really, it doesn't matter the gender. It discourages the individual from even getting tested in the first place. Yeah. So when you have this fear and, and other women know, oh gosh, she's been put on the registry. So it, it discourages the, the testing. And when you discourage the testing, you discourage the treatment, which then you prevent the undetectable viral load, which then you prevent the untransmittable. So it's, it, it's, it's all the barriers into care and treatment. Yeah. You right. know, uh, you don't have stability in housing and a job and insurance, getting to your doctor's appointments. Is that often how it can develop into AIDS, which is viral? Yes. Which is transmittable. Yes, AIDS. Well, your your transmittable 
if you're not undetectable. I see. Undetectable can read scientifically in many different copies. So you would have to check with your local health department, your infectious disease doctor to see what lab they're testing at because undetectable can be under 200 copies, 50 copies, 25 copies. There's many different medical standings on that depending on the lab. But um, once you're on treatment for a minimum of six months, the virus becomes undetectable, hmm. which means you can't transmit. But if you can't get that individual undetectable, Mm-hmm. these laws are just continuing to put the, put everybody at risk because you're not allowing that person care and treatment. That's, I think that's where I was getting with that was if people are saying, well, I will just not get tested and they're not getting treatment, then that is posing a greater risk in the long run to many more people because they're not staying undetectable. That's right. That, and that's what we're trying to get that awareness out and those to understand, but everyone's so keen on the stigma. It's like you yeah. think someone, you know, is out there prostituting is intentionally out there infecting other people. That is the last thing we are doing. Mm. That is the, so far from the truth. And, and at the end, that's how we are treated. I mean, I remember the looks in the courtroom that I was given was just like, I was a monster. Yeah. And I honestly had no clue what was going on. Yeah. I heard it. I heard it, but I didn't know what was going on. It must be really wild to be where you are now and think back to that moment with everything you know, with all the life experience. I mean, for all of us, we must have those moments where we look back and we, with the mature brains that we have now, there's a whole new perspective on that moment. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, do. I do. If I can just go back. I don't even know what the register was. I remember the court saying it, but this was 95, 96. I was 15 going on 16 when my world got turned upside down. So by the time I ended up in court, I didn't know what happened in the world. With I didn't know what a sex offender registration was. Mm. I didn't know they made this new database. I heard it, but I didn't understand what it meant. And once you're on it, you're on it. Yeah. There's no going back. Yeah. I mean, you were told by the John that he was positive. I just wonder how many people aren't being told, you know, and that's a scary thought. Yeah. We've touched on a lot, I think, in our time. And this is a lot of stuff that we haven't talked about with anybody before. And I am really grateful, to be honest, my mind is there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, but that doesn't make any sense, you know? What do you want to leave us with? If you could say one thing to the people who are listening about human trafficking or about specifically this part of the quilt that is human trafficking, what would you want to say? We don't belong in this registry. We don't deserve the treatment and the failure of a chance to own a home, Mm. to start a career. We deserve a chance to live. We deserve a chance of rehabilitation. We deserve the same chances that the, that any, anybody else, you know, that wants to get into treatment or get a home, get a career. You can't on this registry. Mm -hmm. 
is it possible? Yes. You're going to have to work for like an agency, you know, a nonprofit. I mean, to, to be on the sex offender registration and actually gain a respectable employment somewhere. I don't know. That question is really hard. I think that's good though. Just, I think the, the point being though, that you shouldn't be on the registry. Not on this registry. If, if, if those out there listening that don't understand the registry restrictions and what it entails, if you just think in your mind, sex worker, traffic survivor, however you want to view it and compare it to the restrictions that are listed of what we're restricted to, there's no sense. There's not a single restriction on there that has anything to do with that life. Nothing. Because ultimately, the sex offender registry, the point is that it's people who have committed crimes that potentially they could be dangerous to other people. But people who have survived human trafficking, the point was that... We're basically on the registry so Johns could see who not to pick up. You're on the registry. They put child predators on the registry and rapists and, you know, other, you know, whatever else different kind of charges they have. So the communities can know to keep their children safe, you know, a woman or, or a male that was raped, you know, cause it happens both gender both can be affected to alert where their, you know, perpetrator is and, and to keep away from them. Why are we on the registry? It's not for your child next door. I'm not going to hurt your child. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take your husband. I'm not going to rape him. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to rape you. The only reason we're on this registry is for John's. Hmm. That's the only sense any of us can make of it. Either to a, the John's know not who to pick up or who to harm and get away with it. Because who are we to be saved? We're that small bucket of some four dozen women. Why worry about us? Why are we on this registry? What does my HIV have to do with my neighbor living next door? Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. There's no sense. We, we've tried to sit and we, we've tried to make sense of it, but these enhancements, because of the failure to educate and to understand HIV is now, these laws were put in the books back in the 80s when you know AIDS and all the madness broke out and there was a lot of fear. And it was actually under the Reagan administration. They started the Ryan White Care Act. And the Ryan White Care Act, allows those living with HIV and AIDS to access medicine, labs, treatment with lower cost. So it helps offset the cost. I mean, my pills are 3000 a month for one bottle. Oh my goodness. So if it wasn't for Ryan White, we would definitely struggle just paying for our medication. Well, in order for states to receive funding for that, they had to show that they had HIV Pacific laws on the books. So all these states started throwing laws. These laws have not been updated since. Wow. And it's senseless when it's right there in Google. Yeah. Anybody listening can look up HIV and just maybe you may be shocked. Didn't even know actually what it is to live, you know, live with HIV in this time. And, and Tennessee is so behind. 
And, and every year Tennessee adds to the registry, they add and they add and they add, and it just sinks us deeper and deeper and deeper into restrictions. They add the laws for restrictions and things like that. Yeah. I know one year a community was pushing because she was upset that a um, sex offender was living in her community and her mother, who's elderly, was not. I think he was just a rapist. He just, he raped a woman or had that charge on there and was very upset that her elderly mother was not informed and was living right next door. So she started to try to get public reporting, which would mean any registered offender in that area would Mm -hmm. have to like send a newspaper out or have to go door. Some states actually require you to go door to door and tell all your neighbors that you're on the registry. And how does that help if the logic is that this person is, quote, dangerous? Let's have them go to every door. It's a physical appearance and it physically alerts. So a lot of counties around the state have that. And she actually tried to have that pass and we were beyond scared. Some of us are living in hiding. It's that one wrong acquaintance to come back around to drag you right back down a path that you've struggled so hard to build. That abuser, it's, it's whoever that you just don't want to find you is yeah. going to eventually find you. And I'm thinking the resources that are given to, you know, you're talking about you have an app on your phone. Yeah. It's one thing for a dangerous, actual predator to be looked after, but the amount of resources that are being spent to surveil your life, the polygraphs every six months, I mean, that's, that's a great deal of government resources. Yeah. I think you've given us a lot of things that we can, for lack of a better word, use and use well. Really, really brave. And thank you. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to be sure we talk about? Just really needing people to really come to terms with what HIV is in 2020. Yeah. It's not 1987 anymore. Um, and how harmful and how this registry just doesn't make sense. This enhancement in Tennessee does not make sense. As always, we want to thank the Jones Legacy Group for their ongoing support and exclusive sponsorship of this first season of Someone Like Me. Our executive producer is Derry Smith. Producer and editor is Gregory Byerline, and the music is by Kurt Goebel. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please tell a friend and subscribe on your platform of choice so you never miss an episode. I'm Leslie Eiler Thompson. Thank you for listening.